hello, hello, and welcome to week 32 of the 52 Week Film Project. We are back. We took a brief pause last week, uh, just took some personal time, but we are here. We are ready to review Glass, the finale of M. Night Shalamalamian's uh, superhero trilogy, we might call it. Up for debate, Will, what are you thinking? Um, I would say it's a sequel, but a double sequel. If, you, if that makes sense. So it's a sequel to both Split and also Unbreakable. It's not a tr- I wouldn't say it's a trilogy. I wouldn't say that's Split what, is, a tr- is a sequel to Unbreakable. And therefore that's what it they, can't be a trilogy. That's what they're referring to it as, though. They're calling it the East Rail 177 trilogy in relation to the train that is kind of featured in all three films. Yes, I am aware of that. Um, but I, I think this podcast is better than Popular Appeal. I think that we have a nuanced way of looking at the world. And so I'm going to call it a double sequel. That's my that's my take on it. Yeah, all right. Fair play. I see it more as a really incredible film that was followed 18 years, 19 years later by an equally pretty good film, but ma- like massively underrated. Um, and then they kind of tacked on at the end that they were secretly linked to make a third film happen. Mm-hmm. Now what? I've enjoyed I've enjoyed all three, and we'll get into them after the news. However, there were moments in this finale where I thought, did all of this come together for the right reasons, or should they kind of have kept Unbreakable and Split their own movies and keep them good in their own right? I I can understand that. Yes, there's I don't is there a thing to call that on the internet? A one word? Because it was like my th- my my thing with this film is this. It's not it, that, that so the, that's the equivalent of a trilogy. We I don't I'll know, create man, our own I just... word. I just think I just think it's interesting because it's clearly a series of films that was never fully intended to be a series, but kind of as time went on, Shemalian, Shemalian. I'm going to try and think of a new way to use his surname. Every, uh, Shema- like a new way to refer to him every single time. You rocked it with Shemalian. That's great. Um, but I think Shemalian, he kind of <laughs> thought this up, like as he was moving through his career. It wasn't like he did Unbreakable in 1999 and was like, this is a trilogy waiting to happen. Yes. But anyway, we'll get into that in more detail after the news. Now, we have been away for nearly two weeks now. Um, A fuckload has happened. Will, do you want to hit me with your first news story of the week? Uh, Yes, a fuckload has happened. Um, My first um, news story is about a new trailer that has hit, which looks very interesting. Um, A couple of years ago, we had the film Spring Breakers, which was directed by Harmony Corrine. Um, it got a mixture of reviews. Some people absolutely loved the film and some people thought it was a bit gross and problematic and James Franco was playing a really, really problematic character in it. It's it's the one where he has the weave, isn't it? Yes, it's the one where he has the, the gold vi- teeth. Them, oh, that God. weave and those teeth. Yeah, it, do, it does look like... For me, it always looked a bit like a grotty film. But yeah. that is what grungy auteur Harmony Corrine has done with his new film, Beach Bum, which stars Matthew McConaughey as Moondog, a drifting slacker with a pension for pro- for pros and partying. Um, he's he is kind from what I see of the trailer, he's kind of like a musician that like takes all of the revelry that he can get to be able to create magic. And I think it's exploring the central tension and also the crazy things he does. I think Wolf of Wall Street meets um, Spring Breakers and Slash meets Star is Born. Um, so we've got in this film Isla Fisher, Jonah Hill, Snoop Dogg and Zekko Afron. Um, it's kind of looking like sort of like a stoner comedy of some description. Um, kind of like stoner comedy, but also stoner drama. Um, I'm interested to see how it's going to go. Um, I mean, for, for me, Matthew McConaughey's last amazing thing that he d- did was um, True Detective Season 1. I'm not that big of a fan of him in Interstellar. I do not think that he did does 
really the big the best job in the world in that film i think he's a bit meh really and that overrated is... overrated film yeah I, I think so and one of my favorite films of all time is in- inception and i'm a big christopher nolan sta- fan uh stan and fan um <laughs> and yes um I think it doesn't. It still doesn't go up to that. So it'll be interesting to see Matthew McConaughey take on a new, crazy, crazy role. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. I have to say, I watched the trailer and I thought it did look like an interesting. It looked more interesting than I think the premise sounds. Like it, it like you said, it does look quite. Um, it, it does look like that kind of hard hitting kind of comedy drama where it's like this guy. It's like he's kind of on one end of the spectrum. He's like the person everyone wants to be around. On the other end of the spectrum, he's that guy who's never really got his life together. And he's kind of too old now to really figure it out. Mm. And that dichotomy of like, where is he going? Um, it's kind of like a midlife crisis happening after 30 years of sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the come down's hitting and what's he supposed to do? Um, yeah, it looks interesting. We've had um, we've had a lot of traders out in the last couple of weeks, actually. Um, I'm going to reel off a few as my next news story because you know me. I can't limit myself to just three news stories. Yes, no. Um we have had, finally, the trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home. This is the sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming, which was Tom Holland's first outing as uh, the web slinger. Uh, it's going to be coming out in July 2019, so we've only got about five and a half months to wait now, which is really exciting. And they've shown that for this movie, they're going to be taking Peter Parker and all of his gang, MJ, the cute, chubby Asian kid from the first film, I don't remember his name. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're all going on a school trip. They're all going on holiday to Europe. And uh, the trailer itself showcases Prague, Venice, London, um, which is pretty cool. It's the first time a major feature-length Spider-Man film has explored an area outside of Brooklyn. Um, And along the way in the trailer, you kind of... There's no Tony Stark, which is interesting. Um, Obviously, they're keeping that quite guarded because we haven't seen Avengers Endgame. But the kind of father or patriarchal figure that seems to be stepping in is Nick Fury. Uh, Nick Fury kind of hijacks Peter Parker's summer vacation and gets him to help fight against what was heavily rumoured to be the Elementals. Um, In the trailer you see Molten Man, uh, you see a giant water creature and you see a giant rock creature as well. Um, They're kind of well known in Spider-Man lore. And we also see, which was kind of rumoured for months and months, Jake Gyllenhaal um, trying his hand at Mysterio, who is kind (laughs) of one of the classic Spider-Man villains. Um, he's kind of known as an egocentric, arrogant narcissist in the comics who kind of uses special effects rather than having actual powers, kind of dis- disappearing in a puff of green smoke kind of thing. But in this film, it kind of looks a bit more like um, he genuinely does have abilities and he's fighting back against one of the elementals in the trailer. And so people kind of you know it depends where you fall how seriously you care about spider-man comics but some people are a bit like oh we hope they're not turning mysterio into an anti-hero because that's kind of never really been the point of him but then some people have kind of pointed out that maybe it could be a bit more nefarious than that and it could be that mysterio's actually created these elementals as a way to portray himself as a villain to pursue a more kind of a wider evil plan which is quite a mysterio thing to do um and then the real a classic mysterio. <laughs> uh, him and his fishbowl head. Um, some of the really, really big Spider-Man nerds out there are kind of piecing together bits from the last film and trailers for this film and suggesting that at some point in this sequel, we are going to be kind of introduced to the Sinister Six, which is kind of a well-known team of supervillains from the Spider-Man universe who kind of unite to try and put an end to him. 
Um, in the first film alone, obviously, we had the Vulture, played by Michael Keaton. We also were introduced to Shocker, who was played by... Um, he's, he's, from, he's a guy from Better Call Saul. He was in Breaking Bad as well. He plays Nacho. He's a really great actor. Um, but we saw him at the end in the prison with uh, Vulture, sort of suggesting that they were getting a team together to get revenge. Uh, we also saw Donald Glover play Miles Morales' uncle, who becomes the Prowler. Uh, for anyone who's just watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, that was quite heavily involved in that film. Um, and so now we're kind of thinking those those characters are confirmed to be back in some form in this sequel. Um, and we've also now seen Mysterio, um, Sandman's in the trailer, and as I mentioned, Molten Man and Hydro Man. So it's looking as if this is going to be a pretty exciting film in its own right, mm. but it is finally going to do what Sony's been trying to do ever since Amazing Spider-Man 2 with Andrew Garfield, which is bring all of those supervillains together for one big epic film. Yeah, the Rogue's um, Gallery is now complete, which is great. It's been, it's, it's been missing that for a while. Exactly, exactly. And and they I don't know if you remember this, but in the second Andrew Garfield Spider-Man I film... I do indeed, they, yes. At, I know what you're about to the, say. At the end of the movie, you see this secret underground lab that the Hobgoblins kind of developed at Oscorp, which has got the incredible high-tech suits of the Vulture, the Scorpion, Doc Ock, etc., etc. So they've been wanting to do this for a very long time. It was kind of largely assumed that Amazing Spider-Man 3 would be about the Sinister Six. Um, so I think this is this is probably not even really a rumour. I think this is probably where this is going. Um, and I think we can quite safely say that because Sony has been working on this introduction for so long and what they've probably done is just reskinned it into this new Tom Holland franchise. Mm. Um, it's not going to be overrun by, you know, Dane DeHaan's kind of Oscorp company. It's going to be led by Michael Keaton's Vulture and his kind of pursuit of revenge. So yeah, really, really exciting. Um, once again, just like just really funny dialogue, really entertaining, and it goes right back to the core ethos of Spider-Man. Um, in slightly less detail, two more trailers that came out this last week and a half. We had a trailer for John Wick 3, which comes out on May 17th. Obviously, this is the Keanu Reeves kicking ass, taking names action trilogy. Yep. Um, the first two films were brilliant. They, they do a great job of kind of bringing action like action movies back to kind of what's good and not having to worry about kind of exposition heavy dialogue they're kind of just hit man on a path to destruction xyz um and this one looks you know even more amped up there's a bit where john whips on a fucking horse with a sword um halle berry is being introduced as like a sidekick and not only that but john wick's dog and her dog are also in the film like also fighting alongside them which just looks bloody mental <laughs> um final trailer final trailer we've got is um extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile um do you know what this film is i thought there was three separate films in that as well uh, no i don't No. so this, <laughs> um, um, unbelievably that's the long title of one film this film is the ted bundy movie Oh. Uh, in, infamous serial killer Ted Bundy he's being played by Zac Efron now it might have been on the podcast or it might have just been in a conversation with me and you recently but do you remember we spoke about the fact that ages ago they released uh, pictures from the set of this movie mm. and everyone was like oh my god it's uncanny Zac Efron looks just like Ted Bundy um, and we were having that chat about like it, no one said anything about this movie for a really long time like is it still happening um 
it's still happening. It had its debut at Sundance Film Festival this weekend. Uh, mixed reviews. I think that a lot of critics thought that while it was very impressive what he did in the role, the rest of the film is a bit sensationalist and kind of doesn't. It's not really a kind of true roots story. It's kind of quite amped up and quite over the top. You kind of get that feeling from the trailer. There has been some like negative feedback to it that it kind of is continuing to glorify someone who has already kind of been massively glorified by the mainstream media in the US um, and wrongly so um, but kind of doing some digging into it the director of this film um, he's also just this week just gone released a kind of real documentary TV series about Ted Bundy and his confession tapes so this is clearly like a really big passion project for him. But I just found it so interesting because I watched this trailer and thought it kind of had a bit of a Michael Bay pain and gain vibe. Like it's very over the top and it's kind of you're almost made to kind of think Zac Efron as Ted Bundy is really cool and attractive. And it's a bit strange. And then he's also done an incredibly serious, incredibly realistic look at the confession tapes of the real killer. Um and I just wonder, like, how... You know, we haven't seen the movie yet. We don't know if it's going to be as sensationalist as it looks. But clearly, the vibe they're going for is quite amped up. Quite like, oh my god, look at how intense this film is. And not realistic. Mm. Um, and I just find it curious how you can go from doing such a serious documentary on the same topic to doing, like, a massive dramatisation of events. I but think who knows? Who yeah. knows? I mean, fingers crossed it's not going to be sensationalist to the point of... it. It it makes the victims' stories problematic. Not problematic in terms of like what what's happened to them in the exact details, but by giving them names and faces that are different to what what actually happens, it means that Ted Bundy still has has power. I, I, that's what I think anyway. Um, it is that it kind of it kind of cements the legacy is these people as victims if that if they are treated as such in this film. So. Um, I just think, I just personally, I just think even if it looks absolutely uncanny, unremarkably uncanny, like remarkably uncanny that Zac Efron is Ted Bundy in this film. Like imagine like being Ted Bundy in prison and seeing this happen. Like no one in his position needs that much of an ego boost. No, correct. Also, I don't think that, because actors all the time do this, they, they choose challenging roles that are a way for them to get into more interesting, more films with depth. And I think it's a bit odd for Zac Efron, even if he is fantastic at the part, to be to be using this Ted Bundy role as his launchpad to maybe getting into more sort of indie films, maybe getting into Oscar categories where he hasn't before. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it seems like a, the odd, an odd project to choose. Yeah, it's a strange one. Hmm. Um, yes, I suppose I suppose we'll go on to my second piece of news then. Um, I yeah, suppose... Now, 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 now that I've done my three. <laughs> now you've done your three, I'll go into my second. Um, the Sopranos uh, gets a new Tony Soprano. So recently, casting has been going on underway for a Sopranos prequel film named The Merry Saints of Newark for a while. Um, mm-hmm. The, pro- the pro- most directive connective tissue between the show and the movie um, is essentially the choice of having Tony Soprano in this role. The whole plot is about the 60s Newark riots, where African-American and Italian uh, Italian people were at each other's throats. And it was especially lethal among gangsters from each group. And the story focuses on Dickie Montalassi, played by Alessandro Nivoli, 
um, who's a mentor to the young Tony uh, Soprano and also his and also his own father Johnny Boy. So it's a really interesting look at the sort of the early origins of Tony Soprano from the Soprano TV show, but told in a completely different story and a different setting. Uh, it's still got the same t uh, creators behind it, David Chase, uh, the original script editor, Lawrence Connor, veteran Sopranos director, Alan Taylor, will call the shots of the, every episode of the whole film. Um, so it's written by and directed by the same Soprano team. But the main news from this that happened this week is that Michael Gandolfini, oh, I can never get this right, Gandolfini, um, who is a son? Gandolfini. Gandolfini. There we go. To bring that Italianness is the Fini. Um, that's probably so <laughs> offensive. I do apologise. Um, <laughs> who is the son of James Gandolfini? Um, who played? Who played Tony? Soprano, who played Tony right? Soprano? He is now going to be cast as the young Tony Soprano. That's and, cool. Which is really, really cool. cool. It's a really nice nod to uh, James, who died really young. I think at the age of fifty-three. Um, yeah, he died attack. shortly after. Died shortly after the final season was filmed. Yeah. And that was, it was a real tragedy because that had been such a big acting role in his life. Some people would say that it might be, might have garnered him to do more successful, more creative things. It was such a loss, um, very, very, such a loss after such an amazing TV show. Um, but apparently Chase and the producers undertook extensive search and the young actor went through about four or five or six different audition panels and script readings and different casting people with different different um scene partners and etc and so he has he has been through the rigor he's been through a proper audition process and there is nothing like him in the role apparently so i'm in, i'm excited to see many saints of newark now um i it was a film that wasn't on my radar i've watched around about six or seven episodes of the sopranos i loved it but it was one of these things that i i need my full attention on it's not think something i can easily binge watch um, and getting and getting will's full attention is you know is exactly <laughs> I, exactly i i have a scatterbrain and i i know that and it's it makes me charming and yet also a bit problematic um but it but yeah i am excited to what i will do is before this film comes out is watch the rest of the sopranos and i'm very excited to see all of that yeah um, I've, I've never i've never finished it it's my it's my dad's favorite tv show he um he absolutely adored it and i i always see kind of two pillars in kind of early um tv series kind of before netflix and before streaming even began before tv shows kind of serialized tv shows became a big thing in like in terms of like hbo and drama i always saw the two kind of founding fathers of tv series as the sopranos and lost mm. those were for me the two i mean for some people disagree and say things like west wing or the x-files um, but for me, those two pillars of why we consume so many different dramatic TV series nowadays were The Sopranos and Lost. Um, yeah, because the so I do, I do, I need to go back and watch it. I need to go back and watch it. And the key differences between both of Lost and uh, and um, Sopranos, I suppose, is that Lost was a network show that changed the game in terms of what network shows were doing in the in the US in terms of their drama, and The Sopranos was an HBO show and was the final big hit for H HBO to be to like make itself one of one of the best and most notable US cable networks um, and, mm. and it, which in turn increased the satellite potential so both mm. of those two actions i suppose increased the potential of tv to now where we have netflix taking over the world with every new tv serial they create every 30 seconds um, so well done sopranos and um, it's very emotional news about um, michael Gandolfini. 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 
Gandalf and Feeney. You'll get it one day. Yes. Gandalf and Feeney. Um, two more movie announcements from Jake. Um, we have nothing other than just a few details on each, but we have a confirmed uh, third movie in the Ghostbusters series. Now, this is completely ignoring the all-female remake that came out a year or so ago. Um, never watched it. Never really cared for it. Um, it had nothing to do with the fact that it was an all-female reboot. I just thought the trailers were absolutely rubbish, and I didn't like the fact that they'd taken such a such an amazing franchise and just Melissa McCarthy'd it. Yeah, it was not because it was all female cast. It was just it had the, no, the, yeah, the, com- the comedy roles and the comedy characters they put in it was a bit too SNL skit for me. Oh, great! It's Ghostbusters does bride bridesmaids. Yeah, like, literally. That literally. That's literally how I felt. Yeah. So never never watched it. Never cared. I think a lot of people didn't, which is why this news is so great. So Ghostbusters three, it is scheduled for a July twenty twenty release date. It's being directed by Jason Reitman who is a long-standing Ghostbusters addict um, and he's kind of he's got a great career behind him. He was the bloke that did Thank You for Smoking, which is one of my favorite films of all time. He's also done Juno uh, and recently Tully and a few other kind of really great, really on the money kind of dr- dramatic comedies. Mm. Um, so I think he's the perfect kind of sense of humor. He's the perfect kind of person to direct a new Ghostbusters film. It's not going to be uniting Bill Murray and the old gang, but apparently it's going to center on four teenagers um, who kind of pick up the Ghostbusters mantle after all of the years have gone by. So it's set in the same universe. Um, and generally speaking, what it sounds like will happen is it's going to be modern day and four teenagers are going to come across kind of all the Ghostbusters kit um, by some circumstance, and they are going to become the new Ghostbusters of the modern world, which I think is a considerably more interesting premise than turning all the Ghostbusters into women for no reason. Mm. Um, I, th- I think I expect some cameos, definitely. Yeah, oh yeah, uh, no, categorically, I'm hoping that a couple. I, I hope that I don't. I can't remember which ones are still alive, but I hope that like Dan Aykroyd kind of. Is, is maybe like this older character that kind of is trying to keep the Ghostbusters stuff hidden and the teenagers kind of break into his warehouse and stumble across it and he's like a cautionary tale but eventually kind of sees the light in these kids and kind of gets them to I mean it sounds like the Power Rangers now but like, you know what I mean like, like I, I hope that there's kind of some form of mentorship from the surviving Ghostbusters members in this movie I think that that would work really well Yeah, I think more than enough time has passed to kind of reignite this concept but kind of give it that modern skinning mm. um, Dan Aykroyd is Zordon yeah exactly fuck you Brian Cranston um, <laughs> so yeah that sounds great and the other really big um, kind of movie announcement is Jason Bateman is writing and directing a new Netflix comedy and it is going to be centering around John Cena um, now we, we know hardly anything about this film at the moment but we know that it's reuniting Jason Bateman with his co-writer of Game Night which was a largely overlooked but very funny comedy that came out recently um, and the only bit of info we've got about what this film is about is that it's going to take place with a family stuck in an old abandoned movie studio where the sets come to life right I assume so that John Cena sounds, sounds like a bit of a Jumanji vibe yeah um John Cena then will be some kind of a set. He'll be a huge hulking man who secretly is a scare- scared of kittens. That's what I'm going. Well, no, no, I think I think he's going to be the dad of the family. Oh, in okay. The studio. Okay. Um, I I think it sounds like because he's dramatic idea. now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think it sounds great, and I think it's just gonna it's just gonna if it's successful, it's gonna be another one for him to notch to his belt 
in the race to beat The Rock in terms of wrestlers that become actors. Mm. Um, I like John Cena a lot. I think he's fucking hilarious. I still haven't seen that film Blockers that he was in recently. That it was a comedy about three parents of like kids going to prom night that are really like insecure and spy on the kids while they had like have like the wildest night of high school, um, and they get involved in all the hijinks. It's meant to be really really funny. Like Americans loved it. Like, yeah. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was big in the UK, but. It looks funny. Yeah, it does. It does look funny. I, I, I also, I think Commode likes it, so I probably will like it. Oh, uh, uh, right. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, my third piece of news, um, if people who have listened to the podcast before know that um, I have kept people informed when, fil- um, like the troll I am, of when films are delayed. Um, so I will tell people that films are th- this film is delayed. Fantastic Beasts, the next um, episode. Uh, episode, is it? <laughs> All right, Dr. Dre. No. <laughs> yeah, either Dr. Dre or Star Wars. Um, yeah, so it's it's na- the film is now delayed, um, pushing back to a 2020 release. Um that between the first film, um, was it which was just called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, right? There was no extra edition uh, yeah. title, yeah. And then the sequel was Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald. It, it was indeed with a V. Um, and those films were had a very strict, tight production schedule of just two years between each film. This one, however. Um, Warner Brothers has got a policy um, that has just come out that allows big movies some time to come together instead of rushing to meet their specific release date, which means that we're going to have to wait a li- bit longer. Also, they're behind on the this production team are behind on what is termed as soft prep, which essentially means like the very early like basics of the film, which suggests that I. Th- which worryingly suggests, I think, that J.K. Rowling, after the twist of what happened in The Crimes of Grindelwald, has realised, fuck, I need to think of a way to, to work this into the new law. Um, and so she, that's, I think that's what the soft prep is creating. Yeah, she's probably given herself a clusterfuck of a headache. Yeah. Here's all of us getting a bit pissy about her changing up the law. But in reality, we probably don't know how much, how much of a Pandora's box she's opened. Exactly. Um, she has to change think... now a lot of stuff to make this work. Yeah, I, I think it's... I think it's a good thing that it's delayed. I think that the there was kind of a bit of a slap on the wrist with this most recent film. I mean, we watched it, we reviewed it. Can't remember what we gave it. We, neither of us thought it was particularly bad, but it was overly long. It juggled way too much, and it kind of lost sense of the magic that was at the core of the first film. Yeah, um, went too plot based rather than magic based. Yeah. And my my biggest problem with it was it spent too much time um, focusing on characters that, personal opinion, I didn't care about, mm. um, and didn't spend enough time developing the characters that I think should be cared about. Um, notably, that American, char- the American girl, um, Twinny or whatever she's called. Yes. I just just did my head in, did my head in. And it was way too way too much screen time for a character that was largely inconsequential. Um but I think it's a good thing. I think that if it gives them more time to write a third film that's more balanced and nuanced and kind of takes that feedback, you know, to heart, um, then we're only gonna end up with a better movie. It's not like I am gonna get to two years from now and be like, Warner Bros where's that third movie? Like if it takes mm. three years, fine. Like if it's what? a better film, I'd care more. Well, we say this, and then I and then I thought about it the other day. Is that there's five or six sequels planned for the Fantastic Beasts film? So yeah, there's five five in total. Five, five in total. Films. If this delay continues, and there might be now like three or four years between each film, let's say <laughs> we, by the time we get to number five, 
one or one or both of us might have kids. We might be taking our kids to see their first Harry Potter vague <laughs> film. And as soon as I thought about that, my world slightly ended. <laughs> Not Mate, sure about to be that. honest, to be honest, even if it takes about twenty years for them to complete the Fantastic Beasts series, we probably still won't have seen Avatar two. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> they ain't got nothing on James Cameron. Um, yeah, interesting. Or the next Game of Thrones book. <laughs> yeah, definitely, very true. Um, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I think it's um, it's a good thing though. It's nothing but a good thing. Yeah, I'm happy that they're them taking time to think about it rather than rushing it out. Crimes yeah. of Grindelwald did feel to me a bit quite rushed. Massively. Um, yeah. And if and, and if you're a true Harry Potter fan, you're not gonna you're not gonna be so desperate for it to be released quickly. You're gonna rather they take their time with it. Correct. Um, my final bit of news. This is pretty cool, actually. I stumbled across this before we recorded. It came out a couple of weeks ago, so it is outdated. Sorry, fans. Um, <laughs> but Christopher McQuarrie is the director behind Mission Impossible 6. Now, Mission Impossible Fallout was the biggest box office hit in the whole franchise. Um, we reviewed it. We thought it was pretty good. It wasn't anything special, but we got why it was so popular. Henry Cavill's shotgun arms, a particular highlight. Now... The news has come out that Christopher McQuarrie has signed back on to return to write and direct the next two films, Mission Impossible 7 and Mission, Mission Impossible 8, oh, wow. writing and directing. This is the first time that a director has returned to shoot a Mission Impossible film. All the previous, all the previous films have been directed by individual directors each time. Um, and the films are going to be shot back to back. So they are going to be coming out in the summer of 2021 and the summer of 2022. Um, the release date comes in 2021 to avoid conflict with the new Top Gun reboot, mm -hmm. which obviously Tom Cruise is a big part of. However, Tom Cruise has also signed on, so he's going to be doing the next two Mission Impossible films as well. This is quite big, man. Like Writing and directing for a guy that's only just done one of the six films... Um, and not only that, he's taken on the history and the depth of all of those characters from five, like most of them from five previous movies, mm. um, and managed to make it even more exciting than ever before. So yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's a good thing that we've got a, a couple of years until we see the first one. Yeah. Um, and I think that it probably means if they're only going to have a year between them and they're going to be shot back to the back, it probably means that it's going to be a larger story that is shaped across two films which i've always kind of thought would be a good way for mission impossible to work because it always feels like they're cramming so much into one film and maybe if they went at a slightly slower pace dare i say it they could do a little bit more about kind of ethan hunt's personal life and really kind of give it that depth that it needed because i felt like this last one was great it was so high octane but it did lack that kind of personality yeah i would agree with that it might so maybe Maybe it will work this time. And also, what would be nice is that for the Mission Possible um, films to have a cliffhanger ending to one film, because I can imagine that in the Mission Impossible universe, a cliffhanger ending to like part one, part one of the next film as being great. <laughs> Ethan Hawke will be definitely dangling over a cliff. Or something it'll probably be a be a literal cliffhanger. Yeah, literally, it'll be a cliffhanger, <laughs> and Tom Cruise will be doing it in real time, probably. It's, he'll be, broadcast hol he'll live. be holding on. He'll be holding on with nothing but his canines. Yep. And then they do Bandersnatch, and it's like the audience decide if Tom Cruise lives or dies, and then the next film will have him him dead or alive. <laughs> and then Top Gun will never come out. Who knows? That Who knows? Tom Cruise is a madman. He's a madman. He loves his stunts. Oh. 
shenanigans, stunts. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, so interesting news. Now we can get on to our review of the week. We've got we've done well with that news section. We've not we gone too far tidy, over. A, a tidy thirty minutes. It was actually nine news stories. So if anything, we are picking up the pace, mate. We exactly. are more concise than ever before. More concise. Still, still delivering delivering even more great content to the masses. Yeah. You just closed your eyes while you said that, so you must have been enjoying yourself. It's like a cat yeah. that got the cream. So like you know when you believe yourself. <laughs> it's like this is fact. Um <laughs> anyway, glass. M. Night Shyamalan's new movie. Yeah. Um, M. Night Schmeagle. This is the spiritual successor to Split that came out in 2016. And I would say the direct sequel to Unbreakable, which came out in 1999. Now, Shyamalan directed The Sixth Sense in 1998, which starred Bruce Willis, who was kind of the big actor of the time. Obviously, you know, Die Hard was out around then as well. Um, The Sixth Sense was such a popular film that when Unbreakable came out with the same lead actor a year later, it did reasonable at box office, but it was largely ignored. And it's kind of been that film that people have sort of looked back on over kind of the last 20 years, uh, where Shamili Millie has brought out some, you know, pretty panned films in that time he's kind of garnered this kind of feedback as a director that he he tackles very interesting subject matters but his films become very convoluted and plot holes exist um so he's a very he's a very marmite director you either you either are really on board with his style or you kind of you really struggle to grapple with it yeah it, it he does tend to alienate you sometimes as a audience member by having these big concepts that are not really explained and it just sometimes it seems like he's he's trying to dumb down big concepts to a point where you just feel like the film is like watery mush um yeah yeah yeah, no, I'd agree. Um, but so people have kind of gone back and thought, well, kind of his some of his best work was with Unbreakable, um, which for those who haven't seen it, stars Bruce Willis as David Dunn, who is a security guard at a football stadium, who one day is on a train, East Rail 177, and the train crashes and he is the only survivor. He is not only the only survivor, but he's completely unscathed. And through the course of the film and his interactions with Samuel L. Jackson, who plays the character Mr. Glass, um, a man with kind of a brittle bone disease where his bones can break very easily, um, who is a kind of limited edition comic book collector. Uh, Mr. Glass convinces David Dunn that he is actually a real life superhero and he has kind of super strength and he can do all of these amazing feats physical feats um it's a brilliant film Mm. i think i think we can both agree like i i watched it a long time ago and i watched it again last week and it's it it deconstructs the superhero genre before it even really existed like at the time of unbreakable coming out we were still two years away from seeing the first sam raimi spider-man film yeah which is kind of largely considered the birth of the superhero genre um and and it, before that even existed uh shalalalian uh was that wasn't your best one i would just say no, that now that, that, that's <laughs> crap that was so crap um but he was he was looking at what was going to come in modern film and thinking how can i make a superhero film before superhero movies even exist 
that breaks down the notion of what it would be like to be a real human being in a world exactly like our own who genuinely discovers they have physical abilities um and it's kind of it's a real character portrait as well like it looks at his kind of failing marriage and his kind of relationship with his with his son um who's kind of quite troubled and it's just it's just all out i I think it's a fantastic film i think i if i was reviewing it now and it was just coming out i'd give it a nine out of ten unbreakable i i really yeah unbreakable i really love it um and then we shoot forward to 2016 and we've got split now it's not quite as good but it's a very different film mm-hmm. and split is where Shyamalan i'm not even going to try this time <laughs> Emma um, shaman no sorry that's wrong shaman um continue but that but this was where he decided many years later I'm going to find a way to link Unbreakable into a largely very different film um, in order to make Glass. a final film that crosses over these these characters. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, what were your thoughts on Split? It's, I... it, it's, it, it's a more psychological horror film than it is kind of character-driven superhero film. I enjoyed Split. I liked the central performance by... Um... Anya Taylor Joy as Casey Cook, the victim. I thought she was she pl- she played the line of being, um, at one point like sort of nervous teen, angst teen, but also being like quite properly scared. I liked the fact about in Split that there was the cat, the three girls that are taken are not just are not completely stupid. They have something about they have something about them that tries to get them to escape. Um, I think James McAvoy. It's the best James McAvoy acting I've seen in a while. Um, I think he, he, him in Split is just fantastic. Um, I think I have a couple of problems with the, with the film in the fact that the plot um, goes quite quickly and then quite slowly at certain points. There are mm. sometimes really annoying moments of exposition, which there doesn't need to be. Um, I think the film does its best when it's it is low levels of talking and. Um, and just just reaction shots and sort of like creepy menacing. I, I would have preferred if it went into more of a psychological horror thing and less of a character study on what it means to have split personalities. But overall, I think that Split is a pretty decent film. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's near as good as Unbreakable, which um, I, I only watched this week and um, it's it's Unbreakable is fab. Um, but Jake is smiling with me because he knows full well that I watched Unbreakable sm- this morning. <laughs> so, 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 well, 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 explain to me the order of you watching Unbreakable, Split, and Glass. Um, well, uh, not this is not because I'm lazy. I just we had a week off of the podcast and um, I decided to catch up on my TV shows uh, instead of watching films, um, and so left this quite late. And um, so I watched uh, the an hour I, an hour of Unbreakable. Then I went to the, see a screening of Glass at 10.45 this morning. Then I came out of Glass, immediately put on Split, because um, I wanted to see what James McAvoy had done. Because Glass revolves a serious amount about James McAvoy. Um, and it was also on Netflix, <laughs> so it's easy to watch. And then I watched the last hour of Unbreakable. And now I'm here. Um, Your head must be spinning. It's the most convoluted way to watch a series of films. It's probably, you know what, like, Shamumu would probably look at that and go, <laughs> you know what, Will? that is the right way to watch my movies. <laughs> yeah, you probably would, actually. 
Um, I quite enjoyed the process of sort of binge watching them because because for for me as a big superhero person who has not gone and seen Unbreakable before, which is quietly uh, probably heinous, um, it it was quite nice to binge watch all of them together and see the tangible links and see what and remove myself from the sort of fanfare of of Shyamalan's new film coming up etc I've been turned off for Shyamalan for years since I've seen I saw his recent film The Visit which I thought was very meh Um, I thought it was trying to do something with character and personality um, and it didn't really succeed and my first ever film I watched from Shyamalan was uh, not The Sixth Sense but The Last Airbender, because I love the classic cartoon. Oh, God. Exactly. One of the worst films ever made. Exactly. So my experience with him as a director has not been good. So to have three films, which um, we'll go into glass now, um, I thought have been pretty good. Um, it's quite nice. It means that I'm going to give him more of a, more chance as a director. Yeah, I get you. I get you. I mean, just, just before we go on to actually what we thought on, on glass, the couple of points I wanted to make was kind of looking at Unbreakable and Split as two films together kind of common things that I really enjoyed in them were the fact that they had they have very they both have very well developed side characters. Yes. Like they're not like the the girl who's captive in Split and kind of the son and the wife in Unbreakable, they're very, very entrenched in the story. Um and I think that's great because I think in in a lot of films you can largely overlook some of the other characters as being quite superficial. But in his films, um they're almost fueled by the side characters there's very much kind of like the the psychotherapist in split and the girl who's the primary girl who's captive in split and you know the family and mr glass in unbreakable they really do frame the movie stories and they really are kind of the way in which you kind of see things unfold which Mm. i think is great and there's not there's not a lot of other characters as well to like pollute the story you have very strong supporting characters but you don't have like a lot of filler, which he, which which I've expected of Shyamalan before. Yeah, 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 yeah. I also think that um, the cinematography, his kind of style, uh, M Night Shia LaBeouf's style <laughs> of, of of filming, is brilliant. You know, me and you have gone on recently about the fact that we do love a long shot, uh, like a static camera shot. And he does these scenes where it's just like the camera is in kind of like the the doorway of the kitchen. And it will be like five minutes long in Unbreakable with like there's this particularly incredible scene where the son has convinced himself that his, David Dunn, the dad, is unbreakable. He is a superhero, but he's so kind of he's only a child. He's like 10 years old. He's so fucked up with this concept of his dad being a superhero that he grabs like the family gun that's hidden away. And he's like threatening to shoot the dad because he's trying to explain to the mum and the dad that it won't matter because he won't die. Like the bullet won't hurt him. And it's this really intense scene where like the mum and the dad are trying to calm him down and they're sort of saying, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Like that probably won't do anything, but do you want to take that risk kind of thing? And the whole thing is shot just with one. The camera doesn't move. It's literally just the three of them there. And I love that. Um, I also think he does some really kind of he d- he does some shots that would look really cringy if they were done by anyone else where kind of like the camera can move in strange upside down ways and yeah. stuff like that and it, he 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 does a, he focuses a lot on interesting angles and perspectives of watching things in this film nothing is straightforward everything is very carefully like designed um and there are moments of kind of like upside down 
camera shots and things like that, which you, you watch and you think this is really good and it's actually helping add to the impact of the scene. But in any other film with any other director, you'd be sitting there thinking, God, what the fuck is going on? Can you just show me it properly? Yeah, it'd be laughable. Um, yeah, so I really like that. I also just think that Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson and James McAvoy in their respective roles, they are all really, really good. Um, I think the weakest for me is Samuel L. Jackson, Mr. Glass. I think that there are times where I can find him a bit overbearing in all three films. In, in, sorry, in Unbreakable and Glass. Um, I think that James McAvoy is just, he's unbelievable. Like, I talk a lot with people recently when he's come up about this idea that he's done so many movies now. Um, and he's been obviously a, a, a front runner in the X Men series for a while, playing young Professor Xavier, etc., etc. He's really done a lot of very varied, interesting roles, and he's been in a lot of critical and commercial hits. Um, but he still doesn't really tend to end up in anyone's like top five actor lists. He doesn't garner tons of nominations for his films. So I see him as this kind of not overlooked, but kind of very understated actor. Safe. Um, yeah, he's he's a, yeah he's seen as a safe option, and I kind of hope that his role in these films kind of pushes that boat out there for him to be picked up by maybe some more kind of indie projects and to do some slightly more fucked up things because i think there these movies show that well to me anyway that there is no real limit to what he can do with his emotional range have you seen filth um i have seen filth yeah and that's another good example i mean filth obviously is playing a coke adult schizophrenic and it's probably the closest to his role in split isn't it in terms of what he's done before in terms of acting variety definitely like it's it, it was very it was surprising that he was doing filth and it was surprising that he was doing split. And that's not surprising because he can't act them. It's surprising because he had chosen, he had either been chosen or cast in roles where he's sort of the safe person, the safe pair of hands. He doesn't go too anarchic, doesn't go, go too crazy. Um, apart from his first film, I think, which was uh, Stephen Fry's um, Young, Young Bright Things, which is one of my favourite films of all time, and it just assembled this amazing cast of like British actors who would go on to work for the next 15, 10 years. It's David Tennant's first ever screen, screen appearance as well. Um, and he, just Stephen Fry chose everyone so well. And But since that film, apart from Split and Filth, I've not really seen James McAvoy do that much. Mm. maybe atonement but not even that really he was it was he in the last king of scotland he was in the last king of scotland yeah and that, that was yeah that, that was a good... that was pretty good that was a pretty good movie but that was a long time ago that was a long time yeah ago. and i, I, I thought um, he was playing a safe character there he was playing a detective of some description it, it was, was nothing it was nothing overwhelmingly impressive yeah no. um i did see a funny thing actually um you know that whole 10 year challenge that's going on at the moment yes i, I sound like such a grandpa oh you know that thing that's happening on the oh the youths love it yes um no so there was a there was a 10 year challenge which was um it was a picture of him in 2006 and a picture of him in split in 2016 playing the beast this really menacing presence and the 2006 picture of James McAvoy was him playing Mr. Tumnus in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> I um, completely forgot that he played which, Mr. Which Tumnus. Is, which is one of his breakout roles, which I find really funny. Yeah, uh, he, was really far, he was really good at that. He was really good at that. Look how far he's come. Oh, um, dear. But yeah, no, so, so that was kind of just our, our thoughts on Unbreakable and Split. I think we kind of both agree that one of the biggest weaknesses of both these films and kind of 
Shalili is um, work in general is that he can over explain at points and there can be very exposition heavy scenes. And I, I kind of felt when I was watching all three of these movies, I kind of felt like there were times where he wasn't placing enough faith in the intellect of the audience to just enable us to get things a bit quicker. I feel like he's quite heavy handed with the way he explains some concepts um, I don't know if that's maybe because I studied psychology, so like the DID stuff in Split, was, sorry, like, sorry. It, but, but it was a no-brainer to me. Yeah, like yeah. I like I don't need that to be explained to me. Maybe someone else does, but I just that and kind of like the overarching comic book thing, and kind of like I mean, there's a, we'll get onto Glass now, but there was like one of my biggest criticisms of Glass would be this kind of tendency to over-explain, and in a age where we've had countless superhero films now as we've discussed it is its own gen is its own genre and it's one of the biggest genres in film at the moment um we don't need a scene where sarah paulson and mr glass are explaining what a showdown is to the audience in the cinema correct like that is ridiculous. Like, I don't need you to fucking sit here and explain to me how, like, the superhero and the supervillain culminate in this big fight in front of people to show their powers. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, I don't need to know that. No one needs to know that. No. Um, and they were just, yeah. They, so my biggest, like, launching into the Glass review, my biggest criticism of this film would be that they spend way too long saying the same thing over and over again. I think Sarah Paulson's character, who plays this psychiatrist that specialises in delusions of grandeur, specifically those people who think they have superhuman abilities, like something out of a comic book. I think Sarah Paulson actually says the words, like something out of a comic book, about 12 times. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's like, like we, we get the point. We know why you're doing what you're doing. You've, you've, you've successfully captured all three of these kind of incredible people that have that think they have these incredible talents um and you're putting them under the spotlight that's the focus of this film is kind of capturing david dunn the horde and mr glass and doing a real character assessment and making both those characters and us as the audience go back and think about what we've seen and think have we truly seen superhuman abilities or have we led ourselves on to believe that those aren't actually like that those are happening when they're actually not um but the problem i had was she just she says the same shit over and over again and never kind of truly gets deep enough for me yeah i i would love there to be the problem the problem with this film is for me is that i i went into the cinema and had a really good time watching it but the ne- the problems that i had was that the debate that the the central the central debate of this film is that are they real life superheroes that are not ready for society in this in this seemingly real world, or are super are, or is the idea of being a superhero ridiculous? And that central question is just said explicitly throughout throughout the film uh, in back and forths between Mister Glass and Sarah Paulson's character, um, as opposed to going deeper than that, like f- finding the surface of okay, what does what makes it delusion and what makes it real and it seems like it only takes one explanation from sarah paulson to make the horde doubt himself and then one explanation from 
Mr. Glass to make him turn to the beast. Yeah. Like, like that, yeah, like yeah. it's, it's, it's not exactly like these characters are really grappling with these ideas. It feels like we're being, they're being narrated at and then immediately believing them. Well, so, so that's the problem that I had is this film opens really strong. It's a great, kind of re- great opening. It, it reintroduces Bruce Willis years later. It also brings back the same actor that played his son in Unbreakable in 1999. Who, which, I will say, does it, I think does a really good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now, me and my friend, when we were in the cinema, we kind of thought, have they... We haven't looked into it. I should have looked into it before this episode. But uh, is that guy still an actor or was he kind of brought back kind of just to fulfill the role mm. because I thought some of his acting was a little bit patchy but then having said that I thought there was something so like I was not expecting to see that same child grown up in this movie 20 years later I thought that was really impressive it felt like boyhood um, <laughs> yeah 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 so, something that I found quite funny though is they clearly couldn't afford to hire Robin Wright now that she's so famous with House of Cards to come back as the wife and they just killed her off in the narrative instead think about it like, she's dead in glass. She died, like, five years ago, and Bruce Willis and his son have had to deal with it or whatever. But that's not really any of any importance to the plot. I didn't like, know that she, was Robin she, Wright. She, had no idea. Yeah, 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 Robin Wright. It's because her, um, face, is, her face was so... I was, young, I was looking at that. Young. A, young. <laughs> she but it she was, was it 20 was, years younger. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude to Robin Wright, but Robin Wright now has this face which is quite powerful. And it's got this yeah. this jawline. It's got it's got something real hefty about her. In that film, her <laughs> face... <laughs> no, in a, in a really nice way. Like there, her, her face is pointing well, you're sure how for to the screen. A woman, don't you? I know how to compliment a woman, yeah. Um, but no, she, where, whereas in The F- Unbreakable, her character and her face... For me, just sat, felt so unremarkable. I felt, I felt like she turned into Jessica Biel for 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 a, for a moment, and I was like, at some moments she was Jessica Biel, then she was Jennifer Garner, then she was um, who's the other one? I was about to say J Lo, but not J Lo. Like the, like Love all Hewitt. these all these like early oh um the person who's in Million Dollar Baby um who wins the Oscar um who I cannot remember the name of um, Haley something yeah something like that um yeah, all of these actors from that that like late 90s early 2000s i was like she could be any of them but uh, robin right now is a force of nature um that's blown my mind anyway anyway yeah. continuing in the review but, but no so so i thought kind of like they really did a, a terrific job of weaving unbreakable back in for this film like little things like the the comic book shop that mr glass kind of knocks all the comics over in unbreakable is like still in this film um, they have like M Knight himself kind of cameos in all of his films in kind of a kind of sort of Stan Lee kind of way. Um, in Split, he's playing like a security guard that helps the psychiatrist that meets with the Horde um, look at footage of him leaving to see if he's displaying any like strange activity. Um, and then in Glass, sorry, in Unbreakable, before that, he is queuing in line at the stadium where David Dunn works as a security guard and David Dunn kind of shakes him down to make sure he's not like dealing drugs and then in this film in like one of the early scenes David Dunn now runs a security shop and M. Knight is in there inquiring about a camera and he looks at Bruce Willis and he goes hey don't I know you um weren't you like a security guard back in the day at the stadium and David Dunn's like, yeah, yeah, I was. And he's like, oh, like I hang, I hung around with some shady folks back then, but you know, I turned it around. So just such a funny little way of kind of bringing it back in. Yeah. Like that, that is something that M Knight really understands is kind of weaving those stories. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, like having does. the comic book um, shop guy 
um, from Unbreakable returning, and he's still frustrated about people ma- masturbating in the back of his store. This yeah, time, yeah, yeah. It, this time it's over. I think it was Hello Kitty, not Japanese manga. Um, but yeah, it, it like the way he weaves things in like this, it, it's very, very clever and quite admirable. And it- and he also uses some old footage from Unbreakable in this movie, and it's not done in a heavy-handed way. Like that is very, it really complements the story. Um, it, but they essentially, you know, the first bit of the film is David Dunn encountering the Horde, and they end up, you know, getting arrested, and then Sarah Paulson comes in. Now, obviously, we've discussed on this podcast our thoughts about Sarah Paulson. Um, I think she does a terrific job at just being an average actress. Um, and funnily enough, my friend Harry, when we went to see this film, he left the cinema and he said something that I just had to write down because I thought it was hilarious. He said, um, Sarah Paulson does yet another average job as an attractive exposition machine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she does. Like, again, I don't feel her character was of any consequence in Glass. She kind of spends the first half of the film talking about how she's got three days to, like convince the three of them that they're all deluded and she, she keeps saying that but you never quite see her actually doing anything there's just like a bunch of conversations about the same thing and you're kind of thinking when's this going to happen when is she going to start kind of tearing them to pieces and then there is one scene nearly two-thirds of the way through the film which is the basis for all of the pr around this film all of the posters and all of the images it's that iconic well i would say iconic for this movie um, shot of the three main characters all sat in the same room at the site ward together mm. and that's the only time you get them all in the room together to sit there and discuss everything and it is the one time she really does anything to kind of assess them and make them kind of look at the contradictions in their own lives and what they've done and kind of think with the beast for example like you're not bulletproof, the shotgun bullets were old and there was moisture in the gun, and with David Dunn, like, yeah, like, you you think you have a weakness in terms of drowning in water, but that's because of an experience you had as a child. And, it, you know, it, it's an interesting scene, but I feel like they should have, they should have dived a little bit deeper into that stuff. Yeah, I... I feel like they don't even scratch the surface, and then... A few scenes later, both James McAvoy and Bruce Willis are seemingly convinced that they're actually not superhuman people. And that was just a bit like, oh, really? Like, Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the film kind of takes a break when they go to the psych- psych- psychiatric hospital, um, where it just it just becomes overly long in, in that part of the film, uh, with such a strong opener, and in my opinion, quite a strong closer. Um the middle bit just seems a bit problematic and it's not because the film slows down because they're in the psychiatric hospital it's because the film slows down because there's not actually that much they're doing in the psychiatric hospital like if you saw a complete dressing down and re recalculation of the characters in a monologues and and the different ways they had to have to deal with that then it would be worth it but I actually think what happens is that the characters stay pretty much the same and resolute. Nothing much has changed apart from they actually have all met now. Um, which is a shame because the film really, really talks about in the trailers and all the publicity about this big scene happening in the psychiatric ward. And to me, it feels like that scene is that scene is a bit overly long 
um, and takes takes too much time. And the rest of it is just padding, building up to the finale. And I think that the finale would have more heft if some of the... Because the finale is full with... Um, like twists and turns and easter eggs which i'm not going to spoil for the sake of the review but the it would have been i think much more satisfactory if the the middle part of the film started to bring those ideas of the easter eggs and the twists in slightly sooner so that mm. they would so that they would be built in and you'd be like oh, i could have got that from watching that middle part as yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. to them coming as pretty much surprise surprise things at the end I mean, I mean, I mean, that's the thing. I think it does end quite strong. And I mean, to be honest, I don't think we should go spoiler free because I'm quite keen to discuss your thoughts on the kind of final 20 minutes. Oh, okay, go for um, it. But because we've already kind of ru- we've already kind of ruined a fair bit. Um, so let's just assume that people listening have seen the film. But I think you, you are right. Like it, it kind of it has got quite an explosive ending. But it's very relentless. It's like the last 20 minutes, it's like punch after punch after punch, revelation after revelation after revelation. And it could have worked a lot better. Like, Shyamalan is known for having these kind of big twist endings. Like, Unbreakable itself, where Mr. Glass reveals that he has uh, engineered all of these major atrocities where countless people have died just to find David Dunn. Like, Mm. it's, it's a great twist. But with this, with Glass, you're kind of... I personally, like, so when Mr. Glass and the Beast essentially break out of the psych ward and it's revealed to David Dunn that they're going to go to this Osaka Tower, which is like a grand opening of this giant tower in Philadelphia where you have to come and find us because we're going to kill everyone unless you turn up and defeat the Beast. And this is Mr. Glass's way of kind of engineering that showdown of superhero versus supervillain. Um when that happens it kind of all then becomes a bit meandery and it takes them ages to get out of the sight ward in the first place and then they don't fully get out and it kind of feels like he was playing for time a bit with oh, i don't really know how to explain it it just you're sort of you're expecting them to go to this tower and obviously at the end it's revealed that it was mr glass's plan was never to actually reach the tower it was always going to have the showdown on the grounds of the site ward but because they've they've made it this really big thing that they're all going to end up at this tower they start fighting on the lawn outside the site ward and you sort of think like oh well when is this going to move to the tower is it like well what's going on i was kind of getting a bit impatient because i didn't realize that i was watching that big culmination and i think that i lost some of the impact of this big fight between david dunn and the beast outside the ward because I was kind of thinking, in a minute, the Beast is going to run off with Mr. Glass in the car and they're going to make their way to the tower. Mm. It and- seemed, it, it just seemed like the pacing, the pacing was really off. And then when you eventually realise that this is kind of the end of the road and all of the characters are essentially whacked uh, by this kind of strange group of policemen that have four leaf clover tattoos and sarah paulson's revealed to also have one i was kind of thinking like oh god is it really going to be as simple as the culmination of this film is that the like some higher order that doesn't want superheroes to be known to humanity is is going to kill them off is it really going to be that basic of an ending um and in that moment where sarah paulson kind of has her villainous turn 
and she takes David Dunn's hand and he realises the truth that she is actually trying to kill them all and it was her job to try and convince them that they weren't superheroes so that they would all lay dormant. Um, it could have been this really brilliant Machiavellian, like really fucked up moment where she kind of shows her true colours but it was just delivered in the most boring cerebral way possible. Yeah, she played it so safe. I was, I was, I was really gutted by that because if it was any other actress playing this kind of impressive psychiatrist, it could have been this really malicious moment where David Dunn is being forcibly drowned and she is revealed as the reason for it. And after everything he's gone through and all of the, all that his son's done to help him, it could have, it just could have been so much more. Mm. And I found it, it felt flat. And so I kind of, when it then transpired that Mr. Glass had kind of got one over on her and he kind of secretly stolen all the footage and, you know, the side characters unite to release it into the world, I was kind of happy, but I was kind of so exhausted by feeling like the ending wasn't what I was expecting it to be that it didn't quite have that impact. I think what they should have done is cut out the whole secret society bit and then still do the Mr. Glass ending. Um, because that would have, for me, felt the secret society um, twist. To me, didn't with a sixth sense the twist, the twist in the sixth sense, which, um, uh, which is, I mean, it's pr- it's pretty iconic to most people. Like, yeah, it's absolutely. pretty like already spoiled, etc. Um, you can get if you rewatch that film again, you can get the fact that that twist is going to come, and you can get the clues. Um, but the, it's such a good twist because the clues are there the whole time, but it's never stated outright. So they're not trying to lead you towards the clues. They're just presenting them very subtly and then having the huge dramatic twist. So it has yeah. rewatch value. With this film, it doesn't have the rewatch value because the secret society has not once in the whole film um, been been like hinted or dropped in, etc. You will not be able to, on a second viewing of this, find any hints of that at all apart from sarah paulson being at like the scene of these things a bit too quickly and etc and because sarah paulson is doing quite a bland performance i will say i think perp i think actually she's trying to be purposefully bland um but it, it still reads as sarah paulson bland um it doesn't really feel like this secret society builds up to anything um and then I, I just always think that Sarah Paulson's inv- involvement in this film, the whole psychiatric part of it, kind of doesn't allow Glass to fully embrace the cat, the, um, the the relationship between the three characters. Because yeah, only at the very end of the film do you get interactions between Mister Glass and um the, and the Horde and um what's, what's the name character da- David Dunn. Um, you don't get that until the very end of the film. They're, they're th- three of them interacting in their different ways and they, their different experiences. You you only really get um, sort of filler up until that point. And that's, yeah. for me, that's a wasted opportunity of three great actors. Well, well, well see, see, that's my problem is kind of coming full circle. I think my biggest issue with this film, which is, by the way, well shot, well acted by most except for Sarah Paulson, um, and and is is a good it is a fitting end to this seemingly trilogy. 
Um, but my my biggest problem with this film is it starts off really exciting. You're getting these really awesome characters together that have a lot of history and they're going to duke it out. And then it spends about, I'd say, 60% of the film going down this avenue of maybe they aren't quite what you think they are. And that, you know, when that starts happening, I think, fuck it, yeah, like, I'm up for embracing this. Yeah, like, correct. Let, 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 let's get weird and philosophical and psychological and truly look at, have we been tricked by M. Night throughout these films to think that we've seen superhuman feats when we actually haven't? But my problem with going down that route is a combination of Sarah Paulson's bland performance, but also just massively exposition-heavy dialogue that never truly commits to the idea. I think it never quite really gets into that in a meaty way. It never truly gets down and dirty and makes you think, ooh, like, aside from that one scene where they're kind of some of the contradictions about what they've experienced in their lives is brought up, there's not really any time for individual reflection. There's not really any kind of real nitty-gritty and so when it then gets to the end final part of the film where it's kind of revealed kind of unequivocally yes they do have these superhuman abilities and it's really cool you kind of i kind of sat there thinking oh well fuck like i just spent an hour and a half trying to convince myself that maybe i've been tricked all along in these movies but it's never quite actually it's not come to any fruition and it's not actually been that engaging of a story arc to, to to consider whether maybe they don't have the abilities just to then be told that they actually do have the abilities, but there's hardly enough time for you to sit there and enjoy watching those on the screen. Yeah. So I feel like this film, it went down an interesting route, but didn't commit to it. And the whole time you're sat there thinking, maybe it would have been surrendering a bit to classic superhero movie tropes, but it would have been more exciting had it just been an action-packed thriller involving all three of them in this, like dangerous game of cat and mouse and that's i think what fans wanted i think fans appreciate the original for for breaking the boundaries that it did fans appreciate split for being a kind of a sort of pseudo superhero film but pr- predominantly psychological horror they enjoy the fact that he's done different things i think for me not that i'm a fan but what i wanted from this film was something yes a bit more generic but that would give the payoff to the characters without having to make its own new point. I felt like the only point it was making was weak and pretty much recycled from Unbreakable, um, as opposed to a a whole new... They they thought that it was going to be this whole new way of reimagining a superhero film. And M. Night Night, um, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocalam... or Shambam, thank you, man. Um, I thought of those two, and I've been waiting to say them. He said about this film, um, hang on, I'm going to find the exact quote. It's the, he considers this film to be the first truly grounded comic book movie. And that, to me, talks about the arrogance of M. Night Shyamalan, that he thinks that everything he does has to be life-changing and world-affirming. It's why The Last Airbender doesn't work. It's not. It's why the lady in the water doesn't work. Which I had the unfortunate to watch him a couple of years ago. Um, it's he. He tries to go too big on concepts where he can't can't fully deliver them. And the case of Unbreakable is that he had such a contained story where he could go up and down in it that it mm. was fine. With Glass, he's got so many pieces to manoeuvre that to add a whole sixty percent of this film about a new philosophical point. 
which actually wasn't new and philosophical, for me just felt a bit like he was trying to be too meta for his own good again. Um, and I I like the fact that he is an Easter eggs director. I like that. But there is a but Easter eggs do not make a good film, and clever tie-ins do not make a good film. If that makes sense. And whilst yeah, no, I enjoyed Glass for the performances, and especially I think the best part of this film is James McAvoy. Um, I think yeah, well, yeah, with him specifically, I think that it gives a really great it gives a really great chance to see more of the, the character itself. Like there are personalities that you haven't seen in Split, and yeah, they're more kind of fleeting fancies. Like there's nothing that he does character-wise in this film that really impacts the story, except for the fact that with the help of bringing the girl back, he kind of... Kevin gets his chance to sort of... Take control. ...re-emerge, even if it is when he's passing. Um, I actually think that they did the most justice to his character out of all three. Correct. Um, I think that it was very interesting what they did with him and his own individual the culmination of his story kind of fit into the narrative as its own kind of thing um and it was the it was the mr glass david dunn storyline that was a bit more overbearing and i don't think they really did justice to um i think mr glass it, it all ended up quite well and it was quite nice to see how he was truly the mastermind at the end david he, dunn stares yeah. at walls for 60 percent of the film well, see, this is my problem, is I thought that David Dunn was such an interesting character in Unbreakable, but in this film, it starts off really strong, like really, really strong with him as the focus, and then when they're imprisoned, there's nothing really to gain from his character for about 60 minutes, yep. while you can watch James McAvoy being more eccentric, which is always interesting, and you could watch the re-emergence of Samuel L. Jackson. And then when it comes to it, the final fight, I, I, I just don't really think his character is served justice. I think he is just he's just whacked he's just killed and it's not really addressed. I don't personally think there was really any reason for it. Um I mean it makes sense to me that James McAvoy's character was killed and it makes sense to me that Mr. Glass dies. But he is that one that I just think like I feel like he was only killed so that all three of them were dead at the end of the movie. Yeah. I don't think there's I don't think there's really any justice done to the individual character of David Dunn, but he is kind of the cog that needs to be there to make the whole thing possible. Yeah. Which is interesting considering he is at the end of the day he is the hero of the whole thing. Um the hero gets very much put at this put at the back of the story and it's a it's a it's a hero it's a story more about complicated villains than about superheroes um and i i don't mind that unbreakable was very much david dunn's story um i don't mind that, that, that in this one you focus more on james mcavoy and you focus more on mr glass i just wish that bruce willis had got more to do because it reminds me like because bruce willis in this film does not have the magic in my in my opinion um i disagree with you i think um samuel L. jackson does really really well in this film um, fair enough but i think th i think that bruce willis in this film spends so much of it um s like n s trying to portray the same sort of emptiness that he had in unbreakable but for me it just reads that he's bored that if that makes sense yeah 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 
Yeah, you. so in Unbreakable, he's he's acting like he's hollow inside. He's not got a good relationship with his wife. He he him and his kids don't always connect on things. They're connecting over this one thing, which is is he or not a superhero? Um, and he's and he's quite a hollow guy. He lives quite a normal existence. Is quite sort of sad with the world. Um, whereas in this film, I think that still is supposed to exist. Yeah, actually, Bruce Willis is acting it like he's just a bit bored with everything. There's no, yeah. there's no, there's no, it doesn't feel like he's hollow. It feels like it's Bruce Willis being the, the same acting Bruce Willis that did in Red 2. Do you know what I mean? Like, just sort of like phoning in a film. Hmm. Yeah, no, I do agree. I yeah. do agree. Um, should we go on to Critic Quote Awards? Yes. Uh, yes. I'm actually very pl- pre- pleased with mine this week. Um, I've, I found a really f- good one for Best Description and for Most Savage. Go on, mate. Go on, hit me with your uh, best description. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Um, Best description is by Tim Stevens from Comic Burst. He says, I obviously feel mixed opinions on Glass. It is in many ways an almost perfect representation of Shyamalan's strengths and weaknesses as a filmmaker, his tools and excesses. What makes him great was was all on screen, right along with what makes him so frustrating. Um, And I would Mm. agree with that. I think that the nice thing about watching a Shyamalan film... Not that I've watched that many, but now I've watched three in a day, so I feel like I'm better, I'm better equipped to do it. Um, is that he has a nice way of commanding his cinematography. Um, he carried a, on, along a cinematographic, cinematographic uh, theme throughout the three films. They they look similar. They have a similar vibe behind them. Um, I like the fact that he is he has got attention to detail, but those exact same traits of being wrapped up too much wrapped up in the the, the, be- the bells and whistles really came along with this film is that he was trying to make too much of, of a phil- philosophical point and not making a movie that was as enjoyable as it could be but i but i i think that he was tr- he was trying to make it sound philosophical but never really got deep down into it yeah it, it, it's it's a bit of a paradox for me because i think that if you if you if you've watched trailers for this film expecting it to be a real deep dive into kind of delusional psyche it kind of keeps telling you that it's going to do that and it never really does yeah exactly exactly um, it, it doesn't commit to either being an all-out action film with three superhuman characters or being a deep character study of delusional people mm-hmm. it, 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 tr- it flips between both um my best description comes from ed whitfield of the outre no idea what that is outre um outre and he said attempts to marry the realistic take on the superhero mythos from the first film with the schlock sensibility of the second this is like putting a cat's head on a raven's body <laughs> the, the creature doesn't live <coughs> long enough the creature doesn't live long enough, but while it does, it's fascinating to watch. I think that's very true. I think that it, while the characters do work well together, for the most part, it was a largely unnecessary film. And both Unbreakable and Split, I, I can't help but feel like if we just had them on their own, or if we'd had a Split sequel, which, like we've discussed, involved David Dunn returning... And Mr. Glass may be returning in some capacity, but didn't involve them all getting taken captive, it would have been better. Yeah, I would have liked it to focus on one storyline and not four. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Because they focused on all the three storylines of the three characters, plus added this Sarah Paulson psychiatric um, part of it as well. It, I think it would have been a better film if they'd have stuck to their guns and just done a split two sequel featuring Mr. Glass and David Dunn. Because then mm. you, cause th- you could have that as James McAvoy's character having on one part of him the light of David Dunn and on one part of him having the bad of Mr. Glass. And which person do you li- choose to listen to? That would be a really interesting dichotomy. Um, also, also one side note: in in Split, they they make the point that Kevin Wendell Crumb's dad died, uh, no, no, left on a train, right, or died on a train or whatever. They they, they say that, don't they? Yes, they, yes, they, they do. When they, they, yeah, right. And so in Glass, they kind of give the revelation, as it were, of piecing together the fact that. David Dunn and Kevin's father were both on the same train, the Israel 177, which is the one that David Dunn walked away from as the only person alive. And it was kind of made to be this revolution towards the end of Glass that I got a bit confused by because I sort of sat there thinking, hold on, wasn't that obvious? Didn't didn't everyone watching this film already kind of know that? Mm. And, and I know it was kind of being revealed to the character to James McAvoy's character, but it just felt a bit strange because they kind of, they did it in that typical kind of movie way of making it seem like this big revelation. And I just sort of sat there thinking, you've called this the East Rail 177 trilogy. You've already explained in the previous film that Kevin's dad died on a train. Like, didn't we kind of already know that? Yeah. I, I was shocked when I first heard it. And then I remember five minutes after it happening thinking hang on, God, I'm stupid. It's been mentioned the whole bloody film. Of course yeah. this was going to happen. I think why I was shocked about it is because I expected a bigger reveal when they were question- They were they were looking into the... When both Mr. Glass and David Dunn's son are looking into um, James McAvoy's character, I expected something bigger. I expected James McAvoy's father to perhaps be an early superhero or something like that and have some final de- definitive proof in that way. Um, not just him die on a train. I thought that he would die on a train and there'd be something extra about it, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, my most savage, um, this is by Barry Hertz from Globe and Mail. Um, and he says, why was Shyamalan, who, was dire- who has directed at least four objective failures over the course of his career, allowed yet another chance to prove what a disappointment he can be? Which is hella savage. Hella, hella, hella savage. Jesus Christ. Yeah, not, yeah. But then, I don't think this is a disgrace of a film. Like, I know no, I mean, neither. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed I, it. I did enjoy it. I, I think that it's not as good as Shyamalan wants to make it out to be. But I think it's a good, well made, good enough film. I just don't think it's life, life affirming and changing. No, 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 definitely. I, I think it is a complicated one because there's lots to criticise, but I still sat there and had a great time watching it. Yeah. Um, there were, you know, there were moments of fatigue. There were times where I was thinking, God, this is going on a bit. When's it going to get interesting? But, you know, I get that with most films. Um, my most savage quote comes from Michael Ward of Should I See It? And he has put, <laughs> he's put, shattered, broken, cracked, insert whichever pun you choose. Personally, this is one piece of glass I won't want to be looking at ever again. Right, okay. I, I see what he's done there. See what he's done. Very clever, Michael. Do you uh, reckon Michael Ward recommends <laughs> recommends glass? Yeah. Should exactly. I see it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, do you have a favourite moment from glass? Um, there are two favourite moments. 
One is um, Kevin's death, um, quite crucially Kevin's death um, in the arms of Casey. Um, I actually shed a tear. I was quite moved by it. Um, and mm. I think that's what, I think that is the, the, the narrative that I wanted to see happen in Split, then transferred over to Glass of Kevin actually finding a way through and, and breaking through this, this personality, um, super villainous nature. Um, I really liked it. And then I also like Samuel Jackson's monologue and smile as he's about to die. Um, I think that, I for me, Samuel L. Jackson in this film, I have not been excited for Samuel L. Jackson since maybe, I probably Django I got excited about him to a certain extent, but even in Django he was he was eight. Probably Mace Windu is the last time I've been really excited about Samuel L. Jackson in a film. So um, yeah, I think I th- I really enjoyed his him and that smile at the end. Um, although I did recent, I did just see in the cinema the the new Captain Marvel trailer that I've been facing away from, and it looks like Samuel Jackson is going to be quite fun in that one. Um, yeah, which yeah, yeah. He does. I he think does that actually probably will draw me into Captain Marvel more than I thought it would. Would mm. um, is Samuel Jackson being allowed to do something new with Fury? Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think um, my best moment is also a, a Kevin moment. Um, the scene specifically where. Uh, I can't remember her name, but the surviving victim of the Horde Casey. comes. Yeah, Casey comes to visit him in the psychiatric institution, um, and they have this really brilliant scene where she talks to a few of the different personalities, and it's kind of it was just these little things where it was coming back to kind of their experiences together from Split, where um, one of them, Hedwig, the nine-year-old boy, is sort of explaining to her about how he doesn't like Nicki Minaj anymore but he likes Drake and obviously they, they listen to the music together in his room in the in, in the split film and then Dennis turns up and he's like uh what does he say he says something like your clothes aren't dirty that's good you don't need to clean them mm. uh, and obviously there was like such a fixation on that in the first one I just thought it was brilliant I thought that scene was really really fantastic um I thought she brought a lot more to the table than um she had then she i i don't know i just i didn't see when i saw her in the trailer for glass i didn't really see, i was like why is she still involved like is like what's going to happen is he going to break out and recapture her again yeah. like i i didn't know where they were going with it and they went with it in a very interesting direction um probably the overarching best bit of the film for me was their interactions yeah and i i'm i'm happy with her character that i felt in split that one of the biggest missed opportunities not even missed opportunities just problems i had with split was the was the not necessarily the content but the portrayal of what happens between her and uncle um mm. in the in in split and um that sort of abusive relationship that then culminates in her father dying and i thought that i didn't think it was unnecessary i think if played right it would have been a quite an important thing i just felt it was played a bit too much like this is an important thing you must look at this thing it means so much towards her character and then actually mm. actually for me it didn't really have any bearing on her narrative in split that much it was just like oh so she's got a dark and mysterious past and like I, I i didn't really appreciate that um and i also thought it was a bit strong and a bit 
if not well written enough to be sensitive if that makes sense what i liked about this film is that that storyline does not factor into it at all it's purely based on casey's relationship with the horde which i really enjoyed i, I really well, enjoyed it, that. It, it, it does factor in briefly because she explains to him that she's put her uncle in prison yes i know that does that is important and i understand that um, but it, but it doesn't it doesn't rear its head. It's not like they have more scenes involving her and her abusive uncle. It kind of just yeah, moves and, on. and, it, and it, it seems like she sort of nips it in the bud quite quickly um, in this film. It's like this happened in the last film. We're going to mention it, but we're going to nip it in the bud quickly. Um, I didn't I, as opposed to what they could have done, which is have him be a, a plot feature of this film as another yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. And yeah that, you're right. That wouldn't have worked in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so what would you give Glass out of 10? I am going to give Glass out of 10 a 6.5. Okay. Um, okay. It's quite generous, um, but I think that actually if we take away a lot of the context behind this film and judge it as a film and not as a either a double sequel or a, or a allusion to Unbreakable and a sequel to Split or a trilogy... Um, I think it's a good, interesting film that has some lags in the middle. Um, and I like the central performances. And I really like this, the first 20 to 30 minutes of this film a lot. Um, I yeah, think that great. that first 20 to 30 minutes of this of the film kind of saves saves the rest of it, kind of. Like from a, a, a lower score. Uh, yeah, so 6.5 for me. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm going to give it a 7. I think that I really did, you know, for all the bashing I've given it, about its plot and how it could have gone a bit deeper or it could have just gone gone in a different direction. I think it was enjoyable. Um, I just think there were times in this movie where it, it, the, the core performances were so stellar, but they were wasted. Yeah. Um, it, it was ridiculous. It was like you've made these two films bringing out these like really like out-of-the-ordinary characters only to restrain them all in quite subdued context for most of the final film. Samuel Dax Jackson um, does not say a word until three quarters of the way through the film. Yeah, which which was which was quite boring. Yeah. Um, when he gets into it, he does get into it, but it was very dull. You were thinking, fuck, like, is it ever going to actually kick into fifth gear? Um, so, see, I, I think it was, it was a good film, but it, it could have been, I mean, I said at the beginning I gave Unbreakable a 9 out of 10, it, it could have been another 9 out of 10 film for me with, with the characters that have built up and how impressive their performances are and their history is. If they had done this right, it could have been probably one of the best films of the year. Correct. And, and it wasn't. Yeah. Which is a shame. I think it's the worst out of the three. I think for me, the ratings would go Unbreakable 9 or 9.5. I loved it so much. Um, Split, I'm going to give us, I would probably be a 7.5. Or maybe an eight, and then this film is a six point five. Um, mm. It is by far the worst out of the three, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie. It just means no, that it's not. It's out not. of the context of what they could have done with it, they have done it in quite a mediocre way. I would mm. say. But the more you care about Unbreakable and Split, arguably the more you're going to enjoy Glass. So, like my girlfriend, for example, has seen Split and loved it, but she hasn't seen Unbreakable. So she didn't come and watch it with me this week because, you know, we read into it and realised it would probably be wasted had you not seen Unbreakable. Yeah. Um, and, and I do really think that. I think there'll probably be a lot of people. This is done quite well at box office and I can't help but think there must be loads of people out there that have either just seen Split or haven't seen either films 
and go into it and come out of it thinking it's average because they just don't really understand what's happened for that yeah um and i think yeah i I think it shows that fans are appreciating it as opposed to critics panning it in the rotten tomato reviews it's like 33 percent um critic rating and then 71 percent fan rating so predominantly by the looks of the box office like it has had quite a fan successful run which i'm happy about like I'm, i'm happy that that Shyamalan has created characters that that mean something i think always the charm with unbreakable is it's a film that what got garnered its success through mainly dvd sales and so Mm. it's nice that glass is now topping the box office in the u.s um considering its its legacy was of a failed film that like became a cult classic yeah 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 no definitely and i mean one interesting point to make is obviously in his like long storied career um He's done some strange things, man. Do you know that M. Night Shyamalan wrote the script of Stuart Little? I did know that, and it's the most bizarre thing what ever. What the fuck? It's so weird. That is so weird, man. How can you go from doing like these really dark, creepy films to writing a story about a talking mouse on a skateboard? I, I have no idea. In a little red sports car. It is very, very odd. Um, but my, anyway, my we final thoughts on this go film. On, go on, quickly, final thought. Who is your favourite? Um, 23 personalities character oh who is my favorite character from the horde yes uh patricia yes correct brilliant patricia is so so good the subtle nuances of the way that james mcavoy it's when it's when he's clutching his hands like to his to his throat and he does this thing where he moves back and then moves an eyebrow moves a lip quiver i'm like that's 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 patricia that is now now who would like a PB and J sandwich. What a great yeah! That's the opening line from this film, and it is just—it's so good. And it, the the way he plays Patricia is so good. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. It, it's really great. I, I I can't help but feel like I want more of that character. Um, it's terrific. You could watch it for ages. Exactly. Um. Anyway, we will leave you with that. Thank you very much for tuning in. Next week we are going to be reviewing another Screen Unseen, Woo! which is really really exciting. Looking online, it's looking as if that film is going to be If Beale Street Could Talk, which is just we cannot wait. Like me and you have been looking forward to that film for absolutely ages. Obviously, it's picked up some Oscar nominations. Uh, more on that next week. We'll have kind of a more in depth deep dive into <laughs> a more in-depth deep dive than M. Night Shyamalan does in his films, we <laughs> yes. we will give to the Oscar nominations. Yes, uh, we haven't had time this week. But, yeah, so if Bill Street could talk, fingers crossed. And we are also going to review Roma, which is the latest Netflix film by Alfonso Cuaron, which has been kind of massively talked about. Again, it's picked up more and more awards as the season has gone on. Um, so we're going to see what all the fuss is about. Yeah, and, we'll, and, we, and we can link it into our Oscars nomination talk through, because... From for my money, Alfonso Cuarón could win Best Director. Mm. Well, he did. Well, he did at the Golden Globes. So yeah, we shall see. I mean, I'm still um, waiting for that Harry Potter three like Oscar eventually. Like, hopefully, when Alfonso Cuarón wins <laughs> wins like a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, he'll talk about Harry Potter three constantly. It's a masterpiece. Oh, all right, I'll leave you. I'll leave you with that one. <laughs> uh, heavily. Heavily debated topic. Um, thank you very much. Please keep in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, email us at 52weekfilmproject at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you very much, Jake. And we will see you all next week.